most like it's both. But then again, that was hardly news. If they could have done it themselves, if they hadn't been too damned scared to take on what needed to be done for fear of their silk-socked lives, they never would have come to us. The free company was on the clock, and there were only three commandments. Look after your friends, do the job, come out richer. To these the pencil neck was adding an apocrypha of penalties for excessive damage and materials overspend, which we fully intended to ignore, because he was the tool of a litigation-weary soft-ass outfit, and they were afraid not only of death, but also of flesh-eating lawyers and class actions and angry investors and anti-trust and what all, and the first and second commandments forbid stinting during a run. Thus we gazed upon his many provisos and codicils, and we said, Bah! Basic Plan 1. Go to place A, depot, and pick up item X, big box, go boom boom. 2. Take it to place B, the pumping station, which is undergoing state Q, on fire, VV, bad. 3. Introduce item X to place B. Big box go boom boom, burning pumping station. Burning pumping station, big box go boom boom. Shake hands. Didn't we meet once over at Van Cotler's place? Gosh darn, I believe we did. And instigate reaction P, boom boom, bang bang a diddly, boom. And hence state R, oxygen deprival, pseudo vacuum, <laughs> thus extinguishing B, State Q, reaction P. So sorry, dear old thing. Have to go. Children have school tomorrow. Ciao, ciao, mwah, mwah. Thus, four, making enough money to buy a small nation state, farm water wabas, and eat mango all day long. Booyah! Sing hallelujah. We didn't die. The question I should have been asking all this time, the thing which we all should have been wanting to know, Pressingly and insistently is this. How the hell did part of the pipe, the always up, most enduring and secure object ever manufactured by human hands and human engineering, the triple redundant, safe-tastic product of the most profoundly dedicated collaboration in history, how did this invulnerable thing come to catch fire at all? And when you put it like that, the answer is obvious. Someone made it so. But hey, we're not those kinds of people. We are can-do, not what about... Except for me, maybe. The pencil neck smiled at Sally Culpepper, and his victory grin went a bit slack as he realized we'd never had any intention of saying no, and we knew that he knew that we were expected to lose people. Just for a second, I thought perhaps he was ashamed. And then he looked down at his feet and caught a glimpse of his messed-up year's salary shoes, and he hated this stupid, ugly, and above all, cheap place, and his pencil-neck hood rolled back as he found that part of himself which was indifferent and he slipped gently into the warm water of not giving a damn. Look at him again. This is not Dick Washburn you're seeing. Not exactly. 
Dick has vacated possession for this bit of chat. Standing here is not Richard Godspeed Washburn, who sustained a nasty concussion on his fifteenth birthday, the very eve of the Go-Away War, and who spent his next weeks in darkness and candlelight as the hospital he had gone to slowly shut down and ran out and fell apart, then grew to manhood in the new broken world. This is not Quick Dick of the Harley Street Boys, who. Before the orphan finders came and settled him in a home of sorts, and things got somewhat normal once again, could open the rear door of an army truck and pinch a pound of chocolate before the soldiers ever knew. This is Jorgmund itself, staring through Dick's eyes and measuring things as numbers and profit margins. Of course, Jorgmund is nothing more than a shared hallucination. A set of rules which make up Richard Washburn's job, and every time he does this, slips away from the human situation and lets the pattern use his mind and his mouth because he'd rather not make the decision himself. He edges a little closer to being a Type C pencil neck. He loses a bit of his soul. There's a flicker of pain and anger in him, as the animal he is. Feels the machine he is becoming take another bite, and snarls in its cage deep down beneath his waxed buff pectorals and his second best, or ninth best suit. But it's really a very small animal and not one of the fiercer ones. And then it was over, deal done, job on. I sidled over to Sally and murmured in her ear. So before Dick Wash showed up. Hmm. Phone call. Yes. Wrong number. Sally shook her head. I lied, she murmured, just as quiet. It was a woman. Didn't know her. What did she say? She said not to take the job. Nice. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, Sally said. She asked for you. In particular, and Sally didn't say keep your eyes open because she knew me, and that was fine. She nodded once and took the keys to a new truck from the pencil neck's unresisting fingers. Sally and Jim in the first rig, me and Gonzo in the second, Tommy Lapland and Roy Rome in the third, and on to the back of the line. Twenty of us, two to a cab. Ten trucks of bad hair, denim, and spurs, with Tomery Trent wearing his special occasions eye patch, bringing up the rear. Trent was from Preston, born and bred in pork pie country, with coal dust in his blood. He lost that eye in the Go Away War, had it taken out in a hurry so he wouldn't die, or worse. Trent spat on the road and roared, "Captain Goddamn Ahab of the New Highways." Harpoon rack over the driver's seat in case of trouble. He vaulted into the big chair and slammed the door hard enough to make the rig rock. And there was only one really important thing left to do. Sally and the pencil neck shook hands. Sally turned to look at us from the running board of her truck, and there we were, proud and wired and dumb with eighteen-wheel delight. And Gonzo William Lubitsch of Cricklewood Cove. Five foot eleven and broad like a Swiss Alp, dropped his trousers and pissed on our front right tire for luck.
Annie the Ox and Egon Schlender hollered and hallooed from number six, and Gonzo dropped his shorts too, exposing a muscular arse in their direction, then leaped into the truck and punched the starter. I had my feet on the dash, and I was sending up a tiny prayer to the God who ruled my personal heaven. Lord, I want to come home. Mostly when we left the nameless bar, we headed westwards along the pipe. Exmoor was a mile or so south of the main trunk road, and the mountains kicked up funny weather, so eighty or ninety miles in the other direction was one of the pinch points in the zone where you paid close attention to the people you saw in case they weren't really people at all. Every so often, traders came through town. And there was a special guest house in the back of the nameless bar where Flynn put the ones he wasn't sure about. It was comfortable and safe, but it was further from his family. Flynn's a decent man, but a cautious one. This time we went east, very fast. Bone Brisket's tank was the kind with wheels which can do a decent speed, and he was getting everything he could out of it and asking for more. We drove through the night, and either they'd cleared the road or no one was coming the other way. We hurtled through a steep-sided valley and on along the pinch. The wind was blowing in our favour, off the mountains and away. But even so, you could see a broad misty curtain to the south, maybe five miles distant, strange shadows twisting and turning. In a few miles, we could turn left under the pipe. And there was a loop of road which would bring us northeastwards fast. I waited. We didn't take it. Instead, we drove on, and on, and on, and the dawn was building in the sky. And I started to get that feeling which says, "Be ready," because there was one route out here which would bring us over towards Haviland City and full on to a big, thick section of the main pipe. It was an old road, and it would get us there damn fast. But we'd never taken it before because it went through Drowned Cross. I nudged Gonzo, and he glanced at me, then shrugged. Drowned Cross was bad country, the far edge of the border. That was why it was empty, and dead. We rolled out onto a flat meadow, and there was no more desert. A wide green plain stretched into the distance in front of us, cut by a grey line like a dowager's eyebrow, which departed from the main trunk and headed south. Bone Brisket's tank took the corner without slowing, and Gonzo tutted. Whether at this haste or at our destination, I didn't know, but I could feel him paying more attention, looking at narrow places on the road and measuring them with his eyes, checking the escort. And wondering whether they were good enough. Right after the reification and the go-away war, there was a period of what you might call undue optimism. One particular town was built with two fingers up to the recent past, first of a new breed of bright, safe places where we could all get on with real life again, pay tax, and worry about our hairlines and middle-aged spread. And is the guy next door flouting the hosepipe ban during the summer heat? They called it Hairdoll Point, and they sold it as an adventure in neo-suburban frontiersmanship. About five thousand people lived there. 
It had its own little capillary of the jorgman pipe, making it secure, and it perched on a hilltop, so the people there could look down on the valleys below and out into the dangerous mists of the unreal, and know that they were pushing back the boundary just by being here. One day, they could say to one another over decaf, all this will be fields. Now it was called Drowned Cross. We came around a curve, and there it was, tucked up on its little hill, and dark and empty as your dog's kennel after you take him to the vet and say goodbye. The road went straight to it, and so did Bone Brisket, and so did we. Drowned Cross got bigger, but no lighter, jagged and sprawling across the sky. The big broken tooth over the whole place was the church spire, and the rough-edged thing it had fallen against was the town clock, stuck at five-fifteen forevermore. The houses were clean and pale, with terracotta roofs. The windows were unbroken. A couple of cars were parked neatly in the main square, and one had the door open, the kind of town where you left keys in the ignition while you bought your paper. Birds flew up out of the sunroof as we went by, grey and black pigeons with mad pigeon eyes. One of them was too stupid to dodge in the right direction and bounced off the windscreen. Or maybe the others had pushed him. It's not hard to believe in murder among pigeons, Gonzo swore. The stunned bird tumbled away and lay in the road. If it was still there when Samuel P. came by, He'd drive right over it. No one really knew what had happened in Drowned Cross. There weren't any survivors. No one showed up, addled and desperate, at the next town along the way. No lonely shepherd saw the whole thing from an adjoining hill. Whatever it was, it made no noise, in the grand scheme, and left no image of itself. Something came up out of the unreal and swallowed the place. Perhaps the hill underground cross eats villages. I heard a story once, on the radio, in which a group of sailors cast adrift came at last to an island where they moored for the night. They had not expected land, so far off course and bewildered by foreign stars. They had anticipated thirst and madness. They wept and kissed the ground and lit a fire to cook their supper and at last fell into a fitful sleep. Of course, in the middle of the night, they woke to a dreadful howling, and the isle on which they stood began to shake, and then great boneless arms reached from the water to snatch at them, and they realized they had sought refuge on the back of some horrid monster of the deep. I loved cautionary tales like that when I was a child, but sitting with Gonzo and looking down on the clean vacant houses of Drowned Cross, I kept thinking of clams slurped with garlic sauce and the shells thrown back into the bowl. What had happened there was nasty, plain and simple, and there had been others since. In the still hours of the night-time, in houses all around the pipe, people woke and listened and were afraid of things from beyond the border. Somebody out there ate towns whole and went on his way. People said it was the found thousand. I hoped that wasn't true. 
the cross itself, our road and the other one, the east-west road, which went through the town and headed out into what they all figured would be the next slice of reclaimed land, was on the far side of the square.' 